great stories from amazing people. Conversations from the Marsh at Podcast Alley. This is Sports and More with Dean Millard. What would you use uh, word association for Zidane Ochara? Just beast. Just beast. I remember I, I skated with him in the summer in Ottawa and, uh, you know, I got to know him a little bit and I was, I got to know him well enough. I was, we were chatting sticks and stuff like that. And I, I remember this very specific story. I go up, I take a stick, I grab it. I look at it. it curves awful, right? This shaft is huge. It's long. It's heavy. Go to give it a flex. I couldn't even bend it. Right. And I'm like, you know, 250 pounds. And I look at him, I go, Z, what's, uh, what's the flex on this thing? And I'm not kidding. He looks at me like this, like the, like the Terminator, and he goes, unlimited. <laughs> so he, uh, and he's the only guy that ever, like, threw me. I remember I tried to, I drove wide on him one time, and he just literally took his hand and went, boom, like that. And I, like, I flew you know, 255 pounds straight sideways, like, into the, into the boards, you know, back first. And I was just like, whoa, this guy is something else, you know. So he's definitely a uh, beast is the word I would use. <laughs> Hello there and welcome to episode 58 of Sports and More, the podcast featuring Andy Sutton, former NHL defenseman and owner of Verbero Hockey Equipment. And you just heard him there uh, chatting about uh, the great, the legend of uh, Zdeno Chara. So we're going to have a lot of fun today on the show. This is what we have uh, lined up for you. Uh, With Andy, we're going to talk about the Stanley Cup playoffs. We're going to talk about hockey in the bubble. And we're going to discuss Verbero hockey, his career path, disagreements with teammates and coaches, and does it happen more than we think? Also, we're going to discuss playing in Canada, what it was like being an oiler, and uh, we'll do word association and get into some of his former teammates like we did on that opening clip with Zdeno Chara. Uh, by the way, the weekly tribute goes out to Shits Creek. Congratulations to this amazing Canadian comedy. Now, it's not for everybody, and, and you know some of the people I know didn't like it, and that's fine, but the Emmys did. It was a sweep. All four main acting categories and the most awarded comedy in a single season. So uh, to the levies, uh, to uh, everybody involved in that program, um, it's kind of like an SCTV reunion for some of us. So I really enjoyed it. And congratulations to Shit's Creek uh, for putting Canadian comedy on the map, like so many great Canadians did back in the day of SCTV. Uh, by the way, on this show, almost anything goes. We talk sports, we talk pulp culture, we talk music. For the most part, we stay away from politics, and we always uh, stay away from religion, unless it is the sports gods that you are praying to. So before we get to Andy Sutton, i got to tell you about our top three topic today, presented by Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports. This is the coolest thing when it comes to fantasy sports. If you want realism, if you want um, the closest thing that you're going to get to running an actual NHL franchise complete with owners arguing with each other about things. This is it. The The owners are so passionate. We have a Telegram app that never seems to stop when it comes to discussions. Plus, this is realistic. We have a playoff format, includes a playoff draft of the franchises that didn't make the playoffs, but their players are in it, and you get a piece of the pie. So somebody's going to win our playoffs this week, possibly, and somebody else that didn't make the playoffs, um, let's say Braden Point 
was not on a playoff franchise, well, that owner is going to get some cash. It is so crazy good. There's a giant scouting platform. My good friend Craig Button is involved in that. So this is super legit. It's high stakes. Uh, we use the, uh, the, the blockchain. Uh, and, man, if you want to get into the most realistic fantasy hockey platform, check it out at www.uffsports.com. Dot com. So here's the top three today. Uh, fantasy football surprises through two weeks of the season. Good or bad? Uh, my honorable mention is Aaron Rodgers because I did not think he was... I, I had written Aaron Rodgers off after last year and the fact that Green Bay is a massive running team, but Aaron Rodgers has looked really good. So he's been a surprise. Derrick Henry has been a surprise for the opposite reasons. Um, just not scoring... And not getting the ball nearly as much. Ryan Tannehill having uh, some productive outings, and they're throwing the ball in Tennessee. So you know, I'm a little bit disappointed so far in the out- output of Derrick Henry. Um, I think it will balance out, but probably not going to be as successful as he was last year. Julian Edelman is a surprise for me in the fact that Tom Brady is gone. He was Tom Brady's security blanket, and already he's having success in chemistry with Cam Newton. So that's a bit of a surprise for me. And Josh Allen is number one for me. I mean, you know, we saw some really good flashes from Josh Allen and the Bills, but now you're thinking Josh Allen and the Bills might be able to win the AFC East. And this guy is magic with his legs. He's got a great strong arm and he is making things happen um, so far on almost every play. Um, every every offensive series, it seems to be excitement coming out of Josh Allen and the Bills. So that's my top three and my honorable mention. As mentioned, it's uh, presented by Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports. Check out the details and get in on the UFHL at www.uffsports.com. Before we get to Andy Sutton, I want to tell you about podcastalley.ca. It's your one-stop shop for podcasts. We'll have one-timers with Andy in a couple of days. You can also check out Tracking the Draft with Craig Button, Fantasy Fun Time with myself and Jamie Thomas, and the Cannabis 101 podcast featuring Rob Frid this week, a former hockey player now uh, trying to help former players uh, with cannabis use and how to use it properly and how to grow it. It's going to be a really interesting conversation Uh, So Cannabis 101 comes out on Wednesdays, Tracking the Draft and Fantasy Fun Time come out on Thursdays. This show normally comes out on Tuesdays. Check it all out at podcastalley.ca. Let's get to know Andy Sutton in the bio. Time for the bio. Andy Sutton was born in London, Ontario, and moved to Burlington when he was two years old. Until at 14, his family moved to Kingston, where he lived until he left to play hockey at St. Michael's. From there, he spent four years on a scholarship at Michigan Tech playing hockey, where he was named Defensive Player of the Year in his senior season. He signed with San Jose out of school and spent two seasons in the Bay Area before a trade to the expansion Wild took him to Minnesota. 88 games later, he asked and received a trade to Atlanta where he put down roots for five years before moving to the New York Islanders. A trade to Ottawa for a playoff drive gave him his first taste of playing in Canada and he would return north after a stop in Anaheim to play with the Oilers in Edmonton before retiring. 
Since hanging up the skates, he's lived in California, Utah, and soon he'll be moving his family to Tennessee. Andy owns a hockey equipment company called Vibero, and they are doing some very unique things. Andy, it is great to chat with you on the program. Thanks very much for giving me uh, a little bit of a time. Before we get into uh, the Stanley Cup Finals, um, you know, we were just chatting before we kind of got on here. I, I love the uh, the lifestyle that you have going on the homestead, a lot of animals, growing your own food. Um, is that something that was always on your mind or something that happened maybe after you retired? Uh, not a lot of people live that way. I'd love to. How did you come about that? Well, it's kind of an evolution of things, you know. When I, um, well, I was playing to see how many games I played for, how many how many years I spent in the league. I mean, I was injured all the time. I had fourteen surgeries over a sixteen year period, so I was always I was always sort of critiquing the process and trying to figure out how I could rebound, come back, you know, as good or better than before. You know, obviously cir- circumventing uh, you know deficiencies from from diff- different injuries and ailments, and um, so through that, I really started to develop a uh, an interest and uh, a passion for health and wellness. And that started to, you know, went through my, my training, through my, uh, my nutrition and, and all of my recovery and even my, my mental process to, you know, being able to, uh, to endure and rise above a lot of the events that you have to endure being a professional athlete. So it's, you know, men- mental strength type stuff. And uh, coming out of that, you know, and I end up really becoming quite entrepreneurial out of, out of hockey. I, I touch a lot of different stuff and I have touched a lot of different stuff since I left the game. But the first, one of the first things that I did was, um, I ended up buying a company called Jomo it's Jomo.com. And it's, a it's a health and wellness product. It's really an inflammation management product. It's, it's base emphasis is around joint health and joint mobility. Hence, hence the Jomo. Um, but really started to dive into a lot of those ingredients and reformulated that product after I bought the brand. Uh, continue to run that brand today. And then, you know, really started looking at, to an even higher degree at, at everything that I was consuming and, um, you know, started drilling down further and further to the point where I started being really conscious of what I was buying and then started looking at the cost of such. And, you know, living out here in Southern California, you've got access to such incredible environment and climate to be able to grow. So my wife and I started looking at properties where we could do such a thing and that's what prompted us to move out to Fallbrook and um, you know built about you know 12 big vegetable gardens we've got a, a big greenhouse here we added a bunch of animals we raise our own chickens and um, we've got you know goats and alpacas and mm-hmm. rabbits and dogs and cats and partridge in a pear tree but it's um, it's it's really incredible and you start doing that and really start you know realizing the fruits of your labor because it is labor intensive for sure and, and but at the same point in time when you really start to taste what a you know what an apple or what a you know lettuce head or bean is really should should taste like you really you really start to realize that it's worthwhile and then when you really start to think about it you know as you as you feed your three-year-old son and think about how his young body and his young immune system is is receiving these these things versus you know a lot of what Unfortunately, we, we feed our children. Um, you think about setting him up for success, uh, both from a, you know, functionality of his eating and, and also, you know, the mindset behind you know, caring for yourself and what that looks like is we, it's kind of a forgotten art. Um, you know, it kind of just started to go all the way around. And then thankfully I have a, a wife that is really into this as well. And she ends up doing a lot of, a lot of the hard labor, um, believe it or not, because I'm, 
busy working and she's out in the garden all day making it beautiful and, and bringing in beautiful harvests for our family every night and I love to cook so it's kind of like I don't know it kind of all just ties together and so we're uh it's a kind of thing too that I feel like once you go down that road it's difficult to to go anywhere else you know once you start to realize what you can do for yourself and how it tastes and you know how, how the body receives it it's it's kind of an awakening that you can't you can't uh, look away from uh it's, yeah it's, it's a dream uh, everything you just described i'd love to be able to uh, uh have that labor of love and uh, you know someday people can uh work towards that and, and you're right when you when you taste food um, you know, even, even like you look at the color of eggs, uh, you know, with compared to how they are supposed to be organically grown, um, uh, compared to some of the ones that you can buy in a store, it's a, it's a vast difference. And there's a lot of really good literature out there that people can find, uh, to just read about it and learn, learn a little bit. Not everybody can go full bore and, and develop that, but you can make small changes, uh, that can lead to bigger changes down the road just by the types of food you eat and not just the, the diet, but where it's grown and how it's grown. Yeah. And it's the most important thing. I mean, at, at the end of the day, you know, and you, if you want to keep talking about eggs, I mean, you can look up like a, tra- like a traditional, you know, and maybe not so much in Canada, but let's say down here in the, in the U S if you look at a, your mass produced, you know, egg, eggs for food, I mean, they're one of the most acidic products you can buy on the market. And, you know, acidic environments are the environments that really prompt, you know, growth of cancers and different things. It puts you in a, in a constant toxic state. So if you start really looking at, you know, really what, what you're eating just right down to the egg, which is, the, which is really should be the purest, one of the purest foods you can get. And when you start to raise your own and you harvest those eggs and you, and you taste what that tastes like and, and understand what you're feeding those animals. And, you know, you think about energetically, even what you're ingesting from these sort of control environment, you know, mass production chickens, um, just the, just the, just the, the quality of life that that animal has. And then it's, it's, you know, it's, it's sending out food and then that food's consumed by people. I, I believe fundamentally that that energy transfers. So, I mean, when you, when you, when you whittle it down that far, it's kind of, it's kind of impossible not to, not to just keep going. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, yeah, th- there's a lot certainly to learn. Uh, let's talk about right now this Stanley Cup final that we have, and you know the Tampa Bay Lightning are there, and 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 people thought after that uh, the sweep last year that they would come roaring back, and they have. The Dallas Stars are also there, and and you know both of these teams have overcome uh, injuries and obstacles. And you know, is this the Stanley Cup final you were thinking of when that 23 team or 24 team tournament started? Well, I think it's good. I mean, I think it, the one great thing about our championship is is that the the best teams make it to the end. I mean, you can't get there by accident. You have to you have to outperform the series along. They're arduous, and, and in the end, the best teams go the distance. And 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 that's definitely the case again here. I think I think Dallas has a, obviously a very different type of team to Tampa Bay, and and I have a you know I have my own opinions on you know how the series will will end up but um you know that i think the i think they're both they're both strong in their own way and i think if you know if dallas is able to get the kind of goaltending that they've been getting they'll be able to stick around and if they don't the tampa should roll roll them over i think they're they're high octane and they have a depth that i don't believe that can be matched you know and you, you know you can only sit back and be uh you know uh, be on defense for so long before you know you, you, you can't withstand that type of budget anymore so that'll be the piece that i think is going to be interesting to discover how how uh how much dallas can fight back and whether or not 
whether or not the the Lightning can 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 uh, solve the goal, the goalie situation. Yeah, the two things that uh, impressed me the most about the Dallas Stars is obviously Anton uh, Hudobin, the way he's playing, and uh, just seems like a, a, just an amazing guy in the locker room as well with some of the, the footage that you see. And also that Dallas defense that is constantly jumping into the play. I mean, Jamie Alexiak has more goals in the playoffs than he did in the regular season. And Heiskanen and Lindbergh and all these guys, they just, they're just, uh, Klingberg rather, they just love jumping into the play. And, you know, as, as a defenseman, you must love to see that. Yeah, I, I do. And it seems to be the new, the new way, uh, the defensemen are, are to play. I mean, even the, even the bigger guys are, uh, are asked to, to join that attack. And I, I love it. I mean, I, I, w- I wish it had been that way when I played because I, I always loved to, to partake that way. I think, you know, I was just sort of typecast as a defensive defenseman, even though I had, you know, good, good offensive potential um, and capabilities. So I, I like the, I like the, uh, the, I like the five man offense. I think it's amazing. I think five man defense, five man offense is the, is the way the game's played today, and the team that can do it better than the other and, and, and have a cohesive approach is going gonna, is gonna to prevail in the end. What do you think of Braden Point? Uh, I know Stamkos and Kucherov and, and Hedman and you know even Vasilevsky get a lot of the highlights and, and a lot of the ink um, overall, um, but when you, know, when you watch that team, Braden Point to me is uh, he's almost kind of like the the straw that stirs the drink. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on him and and the attention he's going to receive after this Stanley Cup final from maybe casual hockey fans? Well, I mean the the skill is crazy. I mean his his skating ability and the way he sees the ice is uh, is pretty incredible, you know. And he he really does he really does meld that all together and i think his work ethic is 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 pretty exemplary too so i think he's inspiring from that regard um you know and then to surround him with with guys that can finish you know the the way that some of those guys can i think it's just kind of a kind of a perfect recipe there's 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 almost always you know guys like that on championship teams because you you have to have them they're guys that probably in a few years aren't going to be there anymore because the team's not going to be able to afford them, unfortunately, and that's the that's the nature of the game. But if you don't have these guys that are still on the up and coming, that are that are impact players, you're probably not going to go the distance because with the way they have the salary cap structured, um, you you really you really need those support players to be to be dominant and make and then the teams need to make hay when the sun shines in that type of environment because at a certain point when everybody needs more money, there's not enough to go around. What do you think life uh, and hockey in the bubble has been like for these guys? Uh, you know, you're you're always probably locked in during the playoffs anyway, but to be literally locked in is something different. Yeah, I, I got a chance to talk to an old friend of mine, Stacy Roost, who who played in uh, in Minnesota with me, and he's he's the assistant GM uh, there at the Lightning, and he's been in the bubble the whole time, and he said it's tough. You know, the his opinion was the 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 teams that keep their guys the happiest are going to go the furthest. And he said, it's, it's been challenging, but they've, they've made a real, uh, you know, effort to make sure that, that every need is, is addressed. And, you know, he, he mentioned the ownership group over there and how incredible they are. And that basically they were told that any, anything that players needed just to go ahead and go ahead and get it and, and provide that for them at any expense. So their, their whole mission is to make sure their guys are as happy as possible inside the bubble. And, might be another, uh, you know, like a like a sixth man type of thing in the end. If the teams that are able to to really put that to, to up to another level, 
That's really interesting. What do you think it would be like after a really hard-fought game, uh, you know, especially early on when there were so many teams in the bubble and you run into an opponent, arch-rival, I don't know what it was like. I, I know most guys can park it. Some guys might not be able to, but what do you think the post-game uh, bubble life would be like if you run into a guy you just faced in a hard-fought playoff game? Well, you know, I I think what we do on the ice and who we are off the ice are are usually uh, you know disconnected. I think they're two they're two separate things. And I mean, I had lots of different times when I come into contact with guys I played against. You know, even if I had had hard you know fights with them or you know hard fought series or uh, you know just just complete rivalries on the ice. And you, I don't know. There's a professionalism I I believe that's in place. Uh, their mutual respect from being in a, you know, a, a league with only 700 players or whatever. I think you, you know, you, you might walk by a guy just because you don't like Sean Avery or whatever, but it's the same point in time, I'm not going to say anything, you know, you're not going to say anything to the guy off the ice with what you do on the ice. And so many ways that people don't understand we're entertainers, you know, like mm-hmm. and a lot of the players understand that we're entertainers, you know, you're, you got to keep it real. It's like, you know, it's sports and it's entertainment and, and uh, it's only, it's really should probably only go so far, um, you know, and then you gotta you gotta maintain your your integrity and your professionalism for sure. I wonder what it's like uh, playing in front of no fans, and I'm sure they've kind of gotten used to it by now. But you know, you, you, I'd imagine you feed off the emotion of a crowd. Um, there, I guess there is one guy watching that Stanley Cup is watching, which would be kind of weird coming off on the line change and see the Stanley Cup up there. But you know, what's it been like for you watching um, without any fans? Uh, do, have you enjoyed it? Do you like it? Do you can't stand it? Yeah, it was, strange. it was strange at first, for sure. I think just like most things, you know, it's just something new and it takes you a minute. And, you know, I, I, I wasn't a huge fan of, uh, you know, the change, I guess, to start with. But then once you saw the players start to settle in, and I think they also might have altered the format a little bit. I think they made it seem a little bit more, more uh, you know, true, sort of true true sounds and, and things in the in the background. And it definitely made the the viewing experience better. I think the players also got used to it and started to bring their own emotion, manufacture their own emotion. And I think as the playoffs have wound down, I think, you know, the cream has risen to the top. So the, the caliber of play has been fantastic. So as a, as a fan, I'm just, I think I've just really enjoyed the games uh, in general. Uh, it's going to be interesting over the next little while. You've got uh, some some compacted schedules. So you're throwing the Olympics in there. Uh, you know, as a former player, do you look at it and say that's going to be a lot of hockey for these guys in the next you know two and a half years or whatever it might be? Yeah, it, I mean, it is for sure. I'm I'm not sure how much they really care about us as athletes. You know, I think they're gonna they're gonna monetize as much as they can from us while we're around. You know, and I seen it firsthand when you leave nobody nobody really cares about you know your your time uh, in the game or anything anymore you know i think you're you're they, they'll get the most out of you and and the, and the athletes probably get the most out of their opportunity as well so i think it's a matter of you know whether or not the players association is able to kick in whether or not the players the you know prominent players that 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 assist with these decisions being made are able to are able to uh you know exercise the the collective but they to a degree that it, that it has a you know that has an impact so i think it'll it'll probably all remain to be seen all right i want to talk about uh you know you you finished your career uh and and then you retired but uh it, it kind of sounds like uh you've always had you know something else um you know 
thinking about your future, retiring with a plan, so to speak, is, you know, a lot of guys, unfortunately, they, the game forces them to retire and then they, they're not sure they know what to do. You always seem like, uh, from, from reading up, uh, you, you kind of had a plan heading into retirement or even maybe a few years before retirement. Yeah, I, I always knew there was going to be more for me and I, you know, I have a, I have a busy mind and I, I need somewhere to put my energy to. I have a lot of energy and, and uh, ambition, I would say, in general. So, you know, entrepreneurialism really, really hit me hard, you know, once I realized that I could do things for myself and, and build teams and, you know, work on brands. And I was always kind of a brands conscious guy. And, you know, studying engineering at school, I always had a really analytical mind. Um, and then during, you know, the course of my time in the NHL, I had, I had obviously so many injuries, um, you know, missing missing almost half the games I think that I that I was on roster for uh, due to injury. So I was always looking at different ways to build a better mousetrap. I started working on some intellectual property about three years before I retired um, in the protective space. You know, using using the uh, engineering education that I was fortunate enough to uh, to to enjoy at Michigan Tech. And then started to try to license some of that intellectual property um, even before retirement. So that led me down a road that really, you know, in the long run, led me to being the brand owner of Berbero. And now, you know, I've rebranded that um, and we've recast that in a way that that is that is very unique within the game of hockey. You know, we're a, we're a team direct brand. We've got um, some pretty incredible, you know, base positions in the brand with the lightest stick ever brought to market. So with Verbero, you know, I really really took the best of everything that I, that I learned in my time before owning Berbero as a president of a company called Wholesale Sports. It's a brand that, that owned four hockey brands. We manufacture and, uh, and distribute those brands through wholesale and retail. So I, I really got to dive deeper into manufacturing, deeper into intellectual property development, um, and then, and then really better, you know, dove deeper into, into product itself to understand, you know, which products made sense. I really, you know, positioned Verbero to take the best of the best of everything I've ever learned from the game of hockey, um, to include some intellectual property that, that, that is of my own property. And the plan is to be different in every way. Our tagline is be different. We are a team direct brand. We took out the middle layer to make sure that it were as cost effective as possible. I, I don't think the end customer should have to pay the prices they pay for a top tier skate or a you know a top tier stick. So our stick is under two hundred dollars retail. It's the lightest stick ever brought to market at three hundred fifty grams. It's absolutely exceptional. Hmm. Our skate, um, our skate is a full carbon fiber. It's um, one of the most beautiful hockey skates you'll ever see in your life. It's a Japanese grade carbon fiber skate. Um, performance unbelievable. Comfort fit. Everything uh, is there. We're at under $300 retail for that skate. It's comparable to a you know $1,200 retail skate. What people need to understand is the other brands um, are doing the same things that we're doing. They've got a top tier skate, let's say, and the difference between this skate and you know if I was to do a, a lower end skate, it would might be like between $30 and $50 at manufacturing level. So why why would you have to pay up to $1,000 more for the skate that only costs $50 more to make? Doesn't make any sense. And they're trying to sell through wholesale. So they have to account for that wholesale margin. They have to account for resale margin. They have to account for returns and all kinds of other stuff. We, we set it up to, to, to challenge that, to hit it on every front, make sure that we can beat them on price, beat them on quality. We're also not trying to confuse the consumer. We have one amazing skate. We have one amazing stick, one amazing glove, et cetera, on down the line. And we won't replace it until I can find a better a better replace a better product to replace it with um so that that'll be the that'll be the way that Verbero will proceed 
and then really our focus to go team direct is supported by uh, a really robust apparel program and gameware program that I bought in all on demand custom stuff. And then we built a proprietary software system to house all of these products, all of the team apparel, all of the gameware, all of the hard goods and equipment in uh, unique individual team stores at verbero.com forward slash team forward slash team name. That, so that allows every team to have their own store where they can access team branded, team logoed products 24 7, 365 through e commerce. And the plan's growing really well. You know, we've also grown a rep program where we tripled the industry average commission to sales reps. We're allowing our reps to build sub rep forces under them. And that has, that has grown our sales force hand over fist. We've got more than two times as many reps as Bauer has now worldwide. And we envision that number to, to uh, double again before year's end, putting us uh, close to the 500 rep mark um, by year's end. So we've got a really progressive structure and strategy and pricing system and then a continuity platform through the team stores that are that are going to allow us to continuously service the teams that are on board. Wow, man, that's uh, you guys have a, a ton of stuff, a ton of good stuff going on, and and I really like how you talked about from your playing days. Uh, you, you know, you, you thought, how do I make players safer? How do I make equipment better? I mean, the equipment uh, changes over the years. Are, are legendary. I've had Kelly Rudy and Grant Fuhrer on in the in the last little while talking about the you know the pads. And I grew up playing goal, and I remember how heavy my pads would be if the Zamboni left too much water on the ice. So when when you look at the changes in in equipment, is do you think the biggest change in technology is that the equipment has gotten lighter while still maintaining the ability to protect the player, which is the, the first and foremost of, of what its jobs, what its job is. Well, I mean, if I'm being totally honest, I mean, sure. Goaltending goal equipment has changed to a high degree. Materials have, have changed to some degree. I think this is a stick has been the, by far the biggest change in the game. I think second to that would be Gates. Um, and I think in general, equipment and protective in particular is way behind the curve. And that's something that we plan to address here at Verbero. Um, we're, we're going to be, we're going to be debuting the first ever fully ventilated protection systems. Um, it's, and the, the, the strength to weight ratio is going to be off the charts. It's all going to be full custom, uh, on, on demand stuff. And, uh, we're, we're really going to change the way that, that, that protection is, 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 um, is perceived by the end customer and it's all going to be with an emphasis on performance and protection because right now the stuff doesn't doesn't breathe well it doesn't uh you know harbors bacteria and all kinds of other things that the the materials get broken down and degrade so quickly that you start losing performance almost immediately so with 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 us uh accessing the most progressive materials and material solutions in addition to the most advanced construction uh, methods we're, we're going to change the, the face of protection in, in general. That's, um, that's one of our key objectives here at Verbero. Is this, is this something that uh, kind of you saw yourself doing? Uh, you know, you went to school at Michigan Tech. Is this something that while you were there, you were thinking would be something in your future? It really wasn't until, you know, near the end of my career when I started developing the intellectual property. I started thinking to myself, you know, before I really understood the licensing business, you know, I started thinking about, you know, trying to create a brand and a lot of guys try to create brands and it's one of the hardest things to do, you know, brands, brands fail like 98% of the time. It's almost an impossibility to, to do such a thing. And, but definitely having some core IP and, uh, you know, core brand identity helps. And I, thankfully I was able to, you know, cut my teeth in a way that was not, 
you know, not, uh, you know, to a detriment. And I was able to align with some really incredible people um, that have, that have um, coached me and, and cared for me along the way and helped me sort of fast track my understanding of how to, how to, you know, do, how to do this, how to make this all make sense and how to protect myself and protect the brands uh, while, while, while bringing, you know, some really progressive initiatives to the plate. And because of that and, and, and the time that I've spent in it, world, I feel like it was a world-class education. I now am able to really position that inside of Ribeiro and, and, and we're looking really, we're looking forward to a really high degree at getting, getting all these products and programs in front of people because the initial responses that we've gotten on both product and services, the team stores, namely, and the apparel programs we put together are, uh, you know, across the board, everybody's like, where, where has this been? So I want to go back to when you were in uh, college uh, and your uh, final year at uh, Michigan Tech. And uh, as uh, the screen had said previously, you won the uh, Defensive Player of the Year in 1998. You were undrafted, but man, your your senior year took a giant step forward and and lands you a contract with the San Jose Sharks. Like was that you going into your senior year saying, okay, this is this is it here. I got to do everything I can and and become a better player. You know. What propelled you to that? Well, I'll tell you, it was um, you know it's 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 uh, it's sliding doors for sure, uh, as as most things are. But I, you know, I I, I got a scholarship as a forward uh, out of out of uh, St. Mike's and uh, came in and didn't do much of anything my freshman year. You're not probably really expected to. You're playing as much older and you know more established players, and playing time was limited. Sophomore year was kind of like figuring out my way. I think I put on 30, 30 pounds my freshman year. So I was, you know, navigating a new, new body and, um, and trying to figure out how to fit in, in that, in that environment. That was the 94, 95, uh, NHL lockout. And at that time, Pierre Paget came in to, uh, spend two weeks with our team. And when he left, he left notes on every player. And so when Bob Mancini, the coach at the time, called me into his office. He said, Hey, do you want to hear what, what Pierre had to say? And I said, absolutely. He said, all he said about you is try Sutton at defense. I sat there for a second and, and I was a defenseman until I was 10 or 11. So he says, uh, what do you think? And I said, let's do it. And he was like, really, you, you want to give it a shot? I said, yeah, let's try it. So the rest of that year, you know, obviously you can imagine not having played defense for, uh, for a good long time and, you know, trying to step in and f- figure that out as a, as a sophomore in the, in the WCHA was challenging and, and I had major ups and downs. And then the, I had a shoulder surgery um, that summer and came back uh, the junior year and, and didn't really have a great year at all. I had an internship uh, offered to me with the U.S. Navy summer uh, after my junior year, heading into the senior year. And I decided at that time to turn down that amazing opportunity because I really wanted to give the last year one last kick at the can. So for the only time I stayed up at, at school and, um, and and trained and the training wasn't the thing I for somehow, you know, every time in my life where something of consequence has happened, it's because I've sort of like, you know, let go of the, of the, of the need to, uh, you know, set it to some sort of outcome and, and being more present and, and available for those opportunities was, has been everything in my life. So I think that's what happened that year. I went into it with a different set of expectations. I was certainly in good shape. Most guys are, everybody kind of trains the same way. And I, I went in and, and, and just left it all out there and, and uh, ended up having 14 teams try to sign me <laughs> the day after my final game and, uh, you know, went from, you know, having six bucks in my bank account and not having enough money to eat, you know, in given weeks to uh, having every opportunity available to me. And, and from there, you know, 
so many sliding doors along the way to be able to, you know, stick around for 15 years and, and play at the highest level. So I, I feel really fortunate for all of it. it. It was never something that was planned. And I would say even to my closest friends, you know, even over the course of the, of the career, I think I never really felt that comfortable. I think I always felt like I had something more to prove. And I, I, th- I believe that's probably why I was able to make it as long as I did. Yeah, and when when you go into that situation uh, and you have all these teams trying to sign you, uh, then you pick one. Then it's like, oh man! Now you kind of realize, okay, I've just basically got my foot in the door. Now I got to work to make the actual team, right? Because you spent some time in Kentucky, and, and I think it was Kentucky. But um, you know, you, you you gotta you get your foot in the door, and then you got to get the rest of your body through that door. Yeah, and it happened fast for me. You know, thankfully, I, I, I went down right away from school and went to Lexington, Kentucky, where the Thoroughblades were one of the great uh, hockey names of all time. And I think we only played, I don't know how many games were left in the season that year, maybe seven or eight or something. I don't remember um, and what the playoffs were. It wasn't very many. And then I, I went from there, and, and I had to have another surgery that summer. But I went into uh, I went into the Sharks, which is where I signed, and and. I got to be a black ace with that team as they had their playoff run, which was incredible. So I got to, you know, get to know Owen Nolan and Mike Ricci and, you know, Mike Vernon. And just there were so many legends on that team, um, you know, and I, so I got to get a little bit comfortable. I think they, you know, they sort of, you know, felt like caring for me a little bit to some degree. And then I went into that training camp that year and, and um, lo and behold, I made the team uh, as, as a true rookie. I made the team. Played a few games up and down that year and, and watched a lot of games, but I, I learned an awful lot. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm just so thankful that, that I picked that team because I think the, the timing of it and the personnel that were there, you know, including Doug Wilson, who, who brought me in, and Dean Lombardi and, and, you know, more legends. I mean, there were so many in that organization. Um, I just I really landed in a spot that was um, that was really conducive to success. And so from there you go to uh, Minnesota and you end up in Atlanta playing for Bob Hartley. And, and was it in Minnesota where they, they thought about putting you back as a forward and that's how you ended up kind of in Atlanta? What, you know, what did you know, Bob Hartley do to, get, I guess, I don't want to say save your career, but get your career back on track to where it was trajecting to? Well, I've told this story a bunch of times. I think it's, it's a good one. It's, an, it's another time where you, you, know, you have a a strong sense of identity. You stick up for what you believe in and then you fight for it every day. Right. And that's, that's what you got to do in life in general. So I, yeah, you know, Jacques Lemaire, uh, another legend. I mean, I've, I've been so fortunate to come in contact with so many and he, uh, you know, he, he saw me as a forward and, and really wanted me to be a forward. And, um, you know, I had some success with him as a forward. And, and again, I got injured. I blew out my shoulder, came back, you know, after some success as a forward and, and never really found my way back in the lineup. So it was around the, I don't know, 20th of January or something like that. I, I went into Doug Risebrough, another, another, another living legend who was the GM at the time. And I, I, after Mike Ramsey, our defense coach, another legend told me I'd never be a defenseman in the league. Uh, I went into Riser and, and asked very respectfully if I could, you know, if there was any way that he would be able to trade me somewhere where somebody might want to give me a crack on defense because I didn't feel like I was meant to be a forward in the NHL. And uh, lo and behold, he traded me, I think, less than a week later, got to Atlanta, and uh, Bob Hartley was not there that first year, and the team was not good. Finished out that season and, and was like, wow, what have, I, what have I done? They put me right on defense, and it was, a, it was a struggle, to say the least. And then Bob came in that following season, and the first thing he said in his, in his onboard meetings, he called me in and said, oh, I, I heard you have great potential. He said, we're going we're gonna to find out 
He said, I'm going to play you 30 minutes a night and we're going to see if you can play this game or not. And he did. He, he, uh, he played me a lot. He played me in every situation. And thankfully I was able to, uh, rise to the occasion and, and that's really where my career really started to turn and, and it was in large part because of um, because of Bob's uh, you know investment in, in, in me and his, his belief in me and the, the chance that he gave me to, to really prove myself that's it's just so amazing though isn't it when uh, you know when somebody does call you in and say listen we do believe in you and we're going to give you this is this is the opportunity we're going to give you. I mean, you know, not that you thought, okay, I got it made now, but you thought, hey, finally I have a chance. If I do my part and he does his part, things will things will work out, and that's ex- exactly what happened. You just needed somebody to finally say, we're going to give you this opportunity. That must have been such a gratifying feeling to get that opportunity and obviously to, to run with it like you did. Yeah, it was, you know, and I, I thank, I thank Bob, you know, face to face for it. He was, he was doing some, uh, you know, commentating work when I was in Ottawa and I got a chance, you know, for the first time since I left there to sit down with him, we had our run-ins. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a fiery character. He's a fiery character and we definitely, you know, went head to head and I was shouldering a lot there. I think at the time that, you know, we were, you know, we were not great for much of it, you know, and, and I was, you know, on the defense and fighting a lot. And I was, I was, you know, I had a, prominent role and he and I were in in connection a lot we had we had a lot of you know good healthy debates I think all in all we had a good relationship he's a he's a uh, one of the more detail-oriented coaches I ever had he's 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 demanding and uh and and commanding yet um you know he's he's also very technical and as much as he's sometimes tough to play uh play for because he's he's so intense he, he he does mean well and and uh, we we had a we had a good rapport, I'd say, right up right up till the very end. And I, I really thought I was going to resign there, um, you know, in in in, 0, in 07 there, and and um, didn't end up happening. But I I, lo- I loved my time in Atlanta. It was a it was a really really special experience. And as I said, it was really a catalyst to to my career. I think people don't realize how often uh, you know whether it's teammates or player and coach uh, might have disagreements or spats or arguments or whatever that you know it's it's very different than an accounting firm or uh, a lawyer's office where you deal with uh, uh, your colleagues and on a different level there's a lot of emotion that goes into athletes and coaches in general and you know disagreements and things like that are, I I think are probably more common than people think I'm not saying they happen all the time but you know emotion does run high especially in the middle of a game and then you know you guys work it out as adults as teammates as player coach relationship develops Uh, is that would does is it more common than people think yeah i mean it's look it's a it's a pretty uh you know polarizing environment you got a lot of people whose jobs are to you know really analyze and microanalyze everything you do either as a coach or as a player and and because of that there's you know, there's a high degree of, uh, you know, anxiety probably on all levels that, that people are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And then on top of that, you know, there's a lot of money being thrown around and, and whenever you, whenever you do that, I think the, the, the people in charge want to make sure that, that, um, everybody's doing what they should be doing. And then the games are intense. You're the one out there on the ice and you're doing your part, which is, you know, you're in the, you're in the pit as a gladiator. And then you've got the guy behind the bench, you know, pointing his finger and telling you what to do. And sometimes those, Sometimes there's a there's a loss there, you know. There's a there's a power struggle. I think that that takes place, and and most of the time you're you're always you know de- defer to your coach and you're respectful. But sometimes you need to push back. Sometimes you do need to stick up for yourself or your teammates or how tired you guys might be or whatever. And that's just part of being a leader because at the end of the day, 
the coach is not the one on the ice. He's not the one spending time with the guys in the locker room, understanding the pulse of things. And, you know, when you're, when you're in a commanding role as a leader on the team and, and you, it's your responsibility to, to stick up for what's right. And, you know, I had a lot of those, a lot of those circumstances that, that unveiled themselves throughout the course of my career. Yeah, and good coaches are able to recognize that, that, uh, yeah, and, and put their trust in that player that, okay, this player is saying this, they need a break or whatever situation, uh, it might be. How about playing in Canadian markets? You only did that, uh, twice in, in your career in the NHL. Um, I want to ask you about being an Oiler in a second, but just uh, being in a Canadian market in, in general, what was that like for you? I love, I loved it, you know, and I, when I, before going to Ottawa, I was always almost like to a detriment. It was like, nostalgic to go back you know and i i didn't play in divisions where i felt like i played enough games you know back there to uh you know to, to get comfortable like i didn't play for the bruins say where you know I'm, I'm coming in and playing playing the canadian teams on a regular basis you know so i, I always it was always like uh, a lot going on a lot of a lot of distractions and different things so when i got to go into to ottawa there um you know my family's in kingston so it was uh it was a big thrill, you know, and to go to a team that was so such an incredible team. I mean, to have, you know, Eric Carlson as a defense partner and to be able to play with Daniel Alfredson and, you know, Mike Fisher and, you know, Jason Spezza and, and, and you know, Chris Phillips and all these guys. I mean, the, the, the organization was incredible. The staff, so great. And then the games, like I can still remember being there and wearing that very powerful jersey and, you know, hearing that anthem being sung and passing that Canadian flag around, you know, I was just like, wow, this is, I wish I'd done this sooner. I wish I'd done this earlier in my career. So that kind of kicked off for me. And then, you know, I, I don't have many regrets from my career, but they, you know, the senators offered me a two-year extension at the end of that, at the end of that stint. And I, I respectfully turned it down, you know, hoping that they'd still be around and that I'd be able to see what was what I was all available to me on the open, on the open market, you know, and I, I, I expressed to you, I think that I did have a desire to take a look at, at moving out West and, and I wanted to see what that had to offer for, for me as well. So, you know, the, the senators uh, didn't come back around and, and uh, didn't throw their hat back in the ring by the time for agency opened up and, and uh, obviously ended up signing, signing with the, with the ducks, but um, it was, it was a highlight for me. And then I was able to, you know, in the, in the, you know, twilight of my career, even though I felt really good and felt like I, I, I could keep playing a long time, I got a chance to go to go up to Edmonton. And that was one of the highlights of my whole career, you know, playing with all these, all these amazing young players and, you know, Ryan Nugent Hopkins in his rookie season and playing with Jordan Everle and Taylor Hall. And I mean, there were just Sam Gagne. I mean, just so many uh, incredible young talents and, and being there and, and being able to be, you know, be a player on that team and, and also, you know, bit of a a bit of a player coach at that time and get to work with Tom Rennie and and um you know I I I I wish I had gotten to go out the game the the way I would have wanted to you know I I ended up suffering a pretty catastrophic injury in the summer training you know heading to lockout season and then you know obviously we get locked out and and uh I I decided I decided to retire for some personal reasons um more so than anything else but I I never really got to finish it the way I would have liked to, and I still felt like I had a lot left in the tank at the end, so I think I would have at least played another year or two. Playoff hockey is great, but playoff hockey in Canada, uh, I can't imagine what that is like. I mean, you know, I, I had a chance to thankfully cover the, the Oilers 06 run and uh, just being in the building during those games was so ridiculously crazy. Um, you know, what, what, uh, 
you know, if, if playoff hockey is a 10 out of 10, what's playoff hockey in Canada like uh, for a player? Well, for, a, you know, I'll just speak from my own experience, you know, for a Canadian kid, it's, uh, it's a hundred out of 10, you know, it's, uh, it's everything you ever remember about being Canadian. It's, um, you're, you're so, you're so connected to, to the game and to the people of, of our great country and, and, and you're just, you're living it and breathing it anyways. And then it's just, it's on, you know, it's on steroids when you're, when you're up there doing it. And, um, you know, especially when you're with us, you know, such as they're all such storied franchises and, and it's just, uh, it's, it's absolutely incredible. I, I, I love it. I love it so much. Yeah, no doubt. So uh, you mentioned uh, being an oiler, and you know th- that was unfortunately at a, a, a tougher point. You, you you talked about being a player coach, uh, but I, I the the thing I loved about that year was just listening to Tom Rennie uh, in in our conversations from with from a media perspective. Um, I'd imagine you could probably learn a lot from. I loved one of his expressions, "arrow up." I don't know how much if he how much he used that with you guys. He used it with us a lot, but you know, he just seemed like a really good teacher. Which kind of at that point, that team had so many young guys, you needed to to teach. Yeah, look, Tom. Tom is one of the best people I've ever met. He's he's so genuine and caring, and. Uh, intelligent I mean he is so intelligent and um, he's such a great teacher he was the perfect coach for that team at that time I mean he uh, they needed they needed a father figure there as much as they needed a, a coach and he he uh, he was definitely all of those things and then I think at a certain point they thought maybe the team needed a kick in the ass and that didn't work I just think it was a it was a mixture thing uh, I don't know what what the reason was that it took so long for that team to to really grow into prominence but it's uh it was. It wasn't for anybody's lack of trying, or I think for having the, you know the wrong personnel. I think Tom was the right coach to go the distance there, and and I think it just uh, you know timing's everything, you know, and and, and having great teams is uh, is not easy to do. It's it's got so many it's got so many ingredients in it, and and you you mess up a lot of sauces before you make the perfect you know spaghetti sauce. I think you know you and. Uh, I think I think that's definitely uh, definitely true. And then when you, when you're changing, you know, ingredients are getting changed every year. It sometimes makes it exponentially harder for the guy that's actually putting the ingredients together to uh, to, to to create something that's sustainable. Right? It's uh, it's such a challenge. Yeah, it is. It is indeed. There's you're right. There's so many, and and that's why even some of the best built teams uh, don't get it done in the end because maybe that one key ingredient is missing. Did you you know being an oiler was it uh, you know you know we've heard lots of times that uh, you know this city is too hard on its hockey players and guys don't want to come to Edmonton because the fans and the media might be too hard. That that's a narrative that when I was in media was was thrown out there by fans a lot. Did you find it difficult? being an Edmonton Oiler? I, I don't find it difficult at all. You know, I, I, I think in general, people shouldn't say that because the athletes, it's, it's your, it's your responsibility to be able to shoulder stuff. And you're going to have like on any given game, you know, there might be 20% of people that love what I do, 20% that hate it, you know, and, and the other 60 that just don't even notice. So it's like, you, you've got to take the good with the bad with everything. You've got to be able to rise above whatever the circumstance is. You've got to be a professional and, more than anything, if you're going to play somewhere that that has a more polarizing environment, you've got to you've got to uh, 
take it on the chin. You got to take it with a grain of salt and you've got to come out and, and, and you've got to, you've got to give everything. And you see it time and time again, the guys that thrive in Canadian environments are heart and soul guys typically. And, and, and they, they speak to that raw culture that we have up there that appreciates that type of work ethic and type of player so much. So I think, you know, from, you know, for me, it was a great fit, you know, being a, such a work, workman like player, I think, and doing a lot of the things that, that often go unnoticed, whether it's blocking shots or, or hitting or sticking up for a teammate or whatever it is. I think those things are exponentially more appreciated up there. So for me, it was, uh, it was something I probably wish I'd done sooner. All right, let's do uh, word association with uh, some of your former teammates. And I think I think you played with most of these guys. I saw I saw you were on the same roster, and I know uh, and people change. But Zdeno Chara, I think you played with him in Kentucky. What would you use uh, word association for Zdeno Chara? And just beast, just beast. I remember I, I skated with him in the summer in Ottawa, and uh, you know I got to know him a little bit, and I was I got to know him well enough. I was we were chatting sticks and stuff like that, and I I remember this very specific story i go up i take a stick i grab it i look at it curves awful right this shaft is huge it's long it's heavy go to give it a flex i couldn't even bend it right and i'm like you know 250 pounds and i look at him i go you see what's uh what's the flex on this thing and i'm not kidding he looks at me like this like the iron like the terminator and he goes unlimited So he, uh, and he's the only guy that ever like threw me. I remember I tried to, I drove wide on him one time and he just literally took his hand and went boop like that. And I like, I flew you know, 255 pounds straight sideways, like into the, into the boards, you know, back first. And I was just like, whoa, this guy is something else, you know? So he's definitely a uh, beast is the word I would use. No doubt. Jason Strudwick. Struds is uh, just honor. Like he's just, he just like, just exemplified team first and like stick up for his teammates he's a leader he uh i only had a brief you know go with him in kentucky but then you know had a lot of battles against struds over the years and obviously got to see the way that he played and just how how much he was always there for his teammates so just a just a leader for sure and uh and just heart just so much heart and soul owen nolan owen nolan i would say is one of the filthiest players i've ever played with i mean he he, uh, he said to me one time, because I was always trying to figure out how you could blend, you know, skill and, uh, and intensity and even like, even maybe some violence, right? So I'd be like, oh, like, how do you do it, man? Like, what do you do? He said, well, he said, people don't know if I'm going to toe drag them, run them over or beat the, beat the piss out of them. He said, that's how I do it. And I was like, okay, fair enough. I guess that's what you got to do then. So he, he just had it all, man. He, uh, he was incredible. And he was, he, he always, even despite the fact that he was, uh, older and so, so prominent in the game. And I was, you know, basically a rookie. He always treated me with such respect and, uh, that went a long way with me. That's beautiful. Vinny Damfus, who was also in San Jose. Vinny's like, he's, he was just classy. So suave, you know, like in the way he played, the way he carried himself on and off the ice. And, and I remember I tell people this story all the time. Like he, two, two things about Vinny, like he used to get this back in the wood stick days, right. And he'd get his, get his giant, you know, thing of sticks and be like 200 sticks or whatever. And I remember he'd take each one and he'd bend it once and he'd go like this. And he had two piles, one pile that had nothing written on him. And the other pile just said NFG on the top. And he'd send them all back <laughs> Good. Uh, he had beautiful hands and obviously such great vision. And I can remember at the end of every practice, the trainer would bring him a giant bucket of pucks, like 150 bucks pucks, and he'd dump them at the hash mark right in front of the net. 
He'd go left, right. He'd pull them to his backhand, and he'd put every single one of them in the roof of the net off of his backhand from the hash mark. Like, just perfect shots every time. And I remember thinking, well, I got I got some work to do on my backhand here. No doubt. Uh, Ilya Kovalchuk, who you played with in Atlanta. Oh, man. I, just so much skill. It's like, it was, it was just crazy, right? So I got a chance to play with Ilya early in his career, and, and he... Uh, he had so much, you know, like when you get a puppy and he's like, they have so much energy that they almost like don't even know how to use it. They're like crashing into stuff. And, right. and he, he like, he was like that. I mean, he was so explosive and wanted to score so much and wanted to be a guy, but maybe didn't at the time understand, you know, uh, how to, how to integrate himself with the team. And he was learning the English language and, and, um, he just he just had so much raw talent it was absolutely insane and just could do it all by himself that's, that's a good analogy how about ray ferraro who was kind of probably on the opposite end of that uh, kovalchuk spectrum in the later parts of his career well ray you know right up to the end was you know such a warrior and he played played his heart on his sleeve and um you know, I, I think near the end when, when Ray and I got together, I think Ray was Ray was winding down and I think there were some parts of the game that he had started to wear on him, you know. So I think uh you know, I don't I don't know if I if I got a true true sense of like what Ray was like on the whole, but he was always he was always like really really kind to me. We had a we had a good rapport and uh he was he was a good leader for us at at the time there in Atlanta. Marion Hosa, who I will say is the best junior hockey player I ever saw live. When he was in Portland, I was covering the Brandon Wheat Kings in the final against them, and it was ridiculous. What do you remember about Marion Hosa's uh, your time with him? I mean, for starters, like one of the best people I've ever played with. I mean, Marion is Marion is the salt of the earth, just like just naturally, just an amazing human. And on top of that, I would say by far the best all around player I ever played with. I mean, yeah. he he just. So, so smart, so strong. Um, I, he, he used to strip guys from behind with one hand. He'd reach, I don't even know how you could be that strong. He would reach from behind you and he'd lift your stick with one hand and steal the puck and go the other way. And he's so quick before you could even turn around to go get him, he'd be like 10 feet the other direction. I mean, just like, just like two, just head ahead above, you know, everybody else from that standpoint. He just like, he just really understood the game so well, understood how to use his skill set, didn't waste energy. And then outside of that, just like consummate pro. Uh, moving to the Islanders, uh, Rick DiPietro. What do you remember about him? Well, Ricky, Ricky and I became fast friends there on the island. And, uh, you know, we were we spent a lot of time together. We were good buds. And I was there with Ricky when he was going through a lot of the injuries and stuff that he was going through. And, and uh, another phenomenal talent. Like, you know, Rick's just a natural athlete. And, and uh, he when he was healthy, he was he was. Uh, insane like just absolutely incredible and and um it's just really unfortunate all the injuries that he had to endure you know and it had such an effect on him and um you know it was it was it was hard it was hard to watch you know and i was there on the on the front lines of it and certainly ricky bore the brunt of most of it it was uh you know it was uh definitely didn't get to see all of what what uh he had to offer how about doug wait oh man dougie uh I got to play with Dougie and Billy Guerin at the same time. So that was like just unbelievable. I mean, but Dougie, um, other than the, other than the fact that we used to rip on him all the time, cause he, he wore suits that were way too big from like 1985. <laughs> he, uh, he was the best guy on the planet though. Like D- Dougie's just unbelievable and just such a great player. And like every great player is a fierce competitor. Dougie was, Dougie was so fierce, you know, and, and I don't know whether people knew that about Doug, but he, 
he wanted to win as bad as anybody else. And he had a dynamic game that checked every box. And, um, you know, the, the time I got to spend with he and, and, and Billy G and playing cards and stuff like that was some of my favorite, some of my favorite time uh, in the entire game. Like suits too big, like Tom Hanks, when he changes back into a kid in big, too big suits, like what, what do you mean? Like they were just too long or what, or what? They, he wore some, he wore like some pleats, right? And like pleats <laughs> went away. Yeah. Okay. Point, but like, and he bought some really expensive pleated suits, right? So, like, God damn it, he wasn't going to throw them out. You know, he's going to wear the pleated suits. And he wore them. We used to give him the gears so bad. They were, like, nice suits, right? They were probably, like, three, $4,000 suits. And he'd be like, buddy, it doesn't really matter that they were three, four grand. I mean, they're, they're, they're no good anymore. You can't wear them. Like, I don't know what you're hiding in there, but you don't need that many pleats. <laughs> That's good. Uh, John Tavares in, uh, in New York as well. Yeah, Johnny was a rookie there uh, when I was with him in New York, and uh, like, like just, just such an incredible raw talent. Again, I mean, a, a guy that just loved the game so much. He was so, so green. Like we were there, and he had, he had so much to learn. And just to, to watch him now as a, you know, just a, such an incredible, like incredible all around player and so dynamic. I mean, it's, it's obvious that that was the player he was always meant to become and being a captain of one of the, you know, one of the most storied sports franchises is, is a perfect spot for him. And um, he's a, he's a beautiful spirit and he, um, he loves the game as much or more than anybody. He has the nastiest set of hands on almost any player I've ever seen. And he practiced it every day religiously, like a, like a madman. He's just uh, just an incredible talent. Yeah, he really is. And, and, and the one thing that keeps coming up with some of these really talented guys is the amount of work they put into it, right? And, and that's, uh, that's true for a lot of guys. And I, and I hear the same thing about uh, Daniel Alfredson, who you played with in, in Ottawa. And, you know, you talk about leaders. Everybody I've talked to that played with him uh, just uses that word. Yeah, by, by, far the, by far the best leader I ever played with. Um, maybe by far the most. And I played against Alfie a lot, you know, and, and when I was, you know, in charge with with defending the, the thrashers end and was out against him an awful lot and so hard to play against so strong so dynamic um we used to play this drill at the end of practice where we play keep away with with three guys and it'd be inside the face-off circle and these are like some of the best players you know and i was a good defender you know and and you'd have to get it away from you and you literally couldn't get the puck away from him you know he's just uh, he's a phenom and then you know we have uh you know ping, they have ping pong tournaments every every year mm-hmm. there in, in ottawa and uh, in the in the end, uh, Alfie one always plays Alfie two in the finals. And the only distinction is he plays one one is right handed and one is left handed. He's like he's a he's a freak of nature. He's like a two handicap. He's 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 just an abs- he's just an absolute phenom, and he's just the nicest guy too. Like he's uh, he's funny, and he you know likes to have a good time, and he's just like he's just an easygoing character. I mean, he's one, just unbelievable. And then he's just such a great leader and cares for his teammates and his city and. I mean, one of one of the uh, one of the greats of all time for sure. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, one of the more skilled players of all time, Alexei Kovalev. What was it like? Um, unbelievable. I I got to spend a lot of time with him too, and he's uh, he is uh, the skill level is is a whole other level, and he, um, you know, he's a he's a wonderful guy too. You know, he's he loves ping pong, and we we'd love to mess around after practice and stuff like that. He's got a great sense of humor, and um, you know. And got to play against him a lot in his prime too, and and he he's hard to play against. One of the strongest players on his skates you'll ever try to move. His his wrists are about this big around, <laughs> and he could you know, and some of the stuff that he could do that's just insane. I mean, he could from his knees on the goal line, he could he could wrist shot the puck over the net over the net and the glass at the far end 
Um, and, and at the end of practice, we, you know, when we'd be around the center circle stretching, trainers would come out and dump pucks and Kobe would, he'd go behind the pile of guys stretching and he'd, he'd wrist like this and he'd, he'd shoot the pucks over the pile of guys stretching and he'd try to put them on top of the net at the far end. He'd get like one out of every two on top of the net, you know, from wow. the, from the far blue line basically. And just like, I mean, he had more talent in his pinky finger than, than most of us had in our entire bodies. So it's a, to be there and be able to witness that and uh, was 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 pretty uh, pretty incredible. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, the hands were so magic. Uh, what about Eric Carlson, who was, uh, you know, and is considered one of the best skaters in the NHL? Well, Eric Eric always joked because we were uh, we were D partners there in Ottawa, and he'd always he'd always call me the old man. Well, at the time <laughs> I was like thirty five years old, whatever. I guess I was an old man, but he uh, he and I had a good rapport, and I've got a couple of cool stories about Eric. So he. Uh, you know, he was, uh, he was 165 pounds and I played that year at 265 pounds. So we'll put that in perspective. And, um, you know, we were, we made a nice team because, you know, anybody came anywhere near him and I was right over there. And that year in particular, I was, I was really hammering a lot of guys. So I definitely bought him some space and he, you know, he covered me up if I, if I pinched to make a hit and we made a, we made a nice team, you know, he'd obviously love the mail a lot and try to make a good first pass since we were, we were a good partner, but I, he was also, you know, incredibly relaxed for a rookie. I remember looking over at him in the second period in Montreal and I looked at him for a second and said, Carl, what's, what's going on? And he had a, he had a big, chew, he had a big chew in his mouth <laughs> during an NHL hockey game. I'm like, what are you doing, buddy? He just looks over at me and starts laughing. He played the second period with a chew in his mouth just because he wanted to. Like he's just a, he's just a unique soul. Does it, does it his way, you know, and, and really doesn't care what anybody thinks about it. He's going to, he's going to do it his way. And uh, clearly it's the right way. It's the right way when you're, when you're winning Norris trophies. That's hilarious. Well, one of, uh, I, I think uh, one of the funnier guys and, uh, you know, more skilled, T. Mussolini in Anaheim. I remember from, uh, you know, his Jet days and, and was, was a big fan of him then. Well, I've always been a fan, but what was uh, what was playing uh, with T. Mussolini like in Anaheim? Well, I mean, Tim was a living legend, you know, and, and I, at the time, he and, and Saku Koivu and I, we we'd go for dinner together most nights that year, and and we um, we had really good, really good rapport together. And uh, you know, Tame the same thing. It's it's like I can't even believe I got to play with all these guys. And you start bringing them up because I don't think of it this way until they start coming up. But I mean, mm-hmm. uh, watch watch him and 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 see the way that he does things, and um, just he just has such an incredible like you almost can't even put a finger on it. He's like a kind of like an enigma, you know he. He, he's he kind of floats and not in the game necessarily but like in his own way and he just does things and he's he's always there and he's available and he's um he's magical and and uh you know just a fierce competitor too like he scores so many timely goals and and just knew where to be and it's almost like he just uh had a had a had a uh a sixth sense you know yeah, no kidding. Uh, he he just seems like he just loved every second of uh, being on the ice. Let's wrap up with two Oilers then. Taylor Hall, first of all, what do you remember about uh, Taylor Hall and your short stint in Edmonton? Well, Taylor, Taylor and I became good buds. He he um he's a he's a beautiful guy. He, he's got a you know just a heart of gold and so much talent. You know, so fast. I remember just thinking, my goodness, can can anybody really be this fast and this quick and uh, and ferocious like he was completely fearless you know just to to get in there and um just a, just a great dude and I, I it's been so nice to see him uh evolve as a player and, and get the accolades that he that he deserves so that that's been uh, been really cool to watch and alish hemsky 
Alish is, uh, he's just, he's just a sweetheart. I mean, he's, he's just, uh, you know, has such a great game. He, he, he had such great vision and, and, uh, you know, he, he's just a, he's just a great, great guy. I, I love spending time with Alish. He was, he was one of my favorites of all time. Now, this has been a lot of fun, Andy. Uh, of course, uh, people, uh, w- w- I want to just actually wrap up and, and go back to, to Vibero, because I'm not sure if I asked you this, but what's the one thing you're really excited about um, with the, the, the future of the, the hockey equipment that you guys are producing at Vibero? Well, you know, the, the, the fact that we're able to sell this stuff at prices that make sense to the end customer, I'm excited about that. And then really everything is upheld by this, you know, by the, the team stores that we're creating, the, the apparel, the game wear, everything that we've done to create these team stores to allow teams to access their team logoed goods 24-7, 365 is really the backbone of what we do. And then we support that and uplift that, you know, with our stick, our 350 gram stick, lightest stick ever brought to market, you know, our full carbon fiber skate at under $300. I mean, we're, 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 we're trying to, we're putting innovation, performance, and, and really, really quality pricing all in the same sentence and that's never been done before and we're going to work at every step of the way to uphold that model good stuff vibero.com is where you can find it i i'm looking at the intergalactic goalie equipment and uh man if i was uh if i was playing uh, hockey still and maybe this equipment's gonna have to get me back into it because it looks absolutely gorgeous uh some some really good stuff out there. So I'm looking forward to uh, people uh, finding out more. Um, yeah, I, I love it. Uh, what give us the uh, the meaning behind verbero? Well, verbero in Latin literally means to beat, lash, squirts, drum, um, and we're doing that in every way. Our tagline is "Be different." Um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm taking everything I've ever learned from the game, and and I really mean it when I say we're going to be a brand that connects with people directly. We're going to bring value, performance, and innovation without compromise, and that's never been done before. We're not trying to enter into the domain of the, you know, of the uh, of the status quo in any way, shape, or form. We're going to bring a fresh approach to this, and we're going to continue to preach that message so that people can realize the, the benefits of going with a brand like Verbero and understanding the the way that probably they should have purchased all along. Good stuff. Thanks so much for your time, man. Best of luck uh, with the uh, the family and the farm and uh, uh, the move uh, to Tennessee at some point. And uh, let's stay in touch. Sounds great, Dean. Thanks a lot. That was a great conversation with uh, Andy Sutton, a former NHLer over 670 games and uh, now uh, some amazing uh, developments in uh, technology have allowed him to create some great uh, affordable hockey equipment. Fun conversation. We'll have one-timers with him 
in a couple of days. I think you'll enjoy that as well. And big thanks to uh, Sweet Bejesus as well, the official band of Sports and More, the podcast. You can check out their debut album, Policeman's Creek, at Apple Music, Christian Gutzis, and Kevin Dabbs make up Sweet Bejesus. Uh, that was Solo Sailing Excursion uh, from, as mentioned, their debut album. All right, the ultimate franchise fantasy sports poll question. We just heard one of the guys that could be the answer. Uh, Yesterday, on yesterday's date, when this show was supposed to come out, but we had some technical difficulties, that's why there's no video of uh, the interview with Andy, which there was supposed to be. But anyway, yesterday in 1967, uh, the Beatles appeared on Time Magazine, the cover of Time Magazine, And yesterday, in 1980, John Lennon signed with uh, Geffen Records. So our poll question today, who's your favorite Beatle? Who's your favorite Fab Four? Is it the man who has this catchphrase? Maybe it's Ringo. I don't know. Uh, John, Paul, George, or Ringo? For me, it's George Harrison. I love Paul McCartney. Um, I've seen him twice and it's an amazing concert uh he's an amazing man but george harrison for me uh i don't know what i well a uh my beautiful wife walked down the aisle to here comes the sun so that's a special song for me and you know george harrison was always the kind of the mysterious one that you maybe didn't know as much about uh not the obvious choice as john or paul would be I feel bad for Ringo. I love Ringo. I'd love to see Ringo in concert. I wish he would tour again. And then I could see, I'd say I saw half of the Beatles. But for me, it's George Harrison. Um, you know, some of the songs uh, he has written are so wonderful. And some of his solo work is is awesome. Obviously, Paul McCartney's had the most successful solo career. Um, would it be interesting to see what would have happened if John Lennon would have lived and had his solo career a little bit longer. But you can have your vote at Duck Millard on Twitter. And uh, I'll tell you right now, not surprisingly, Paul McCartney leading the way at 38.9%. John Lennon is second at 27.8%, but George Harrison is not far behind at 24.1%. So I thought John and Paul would be a little bit closer, uh, Ringo getting 9.3% of the vote. You can have your say at Duck Millard on Twitter. Who is your favorite of the Fab Four? You can get more details about Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports where they're also branching out into MMA. It's going to be amazing. This platform is great. It's only building. Future sports and leagues will be added. The sky's the limit. And if you've ever wanted to have, like, Gordie Howe and Wayne Gretzky on the same fantasy team, you might be able to do that in the future. I predict you will with Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports. Check out all the details on this groundbreaking platform at www.uffsports.com. Dot com. Before we wrap up, we have to get to perfect player. In honor of the Raiders 2-0 start, we're going with Raider running backs. Here's how perfect player works. You take three players, combine them to make the perfect player. So when you're looking at Raider running backs, you're starting with Bo Jackson, in my opinion. Speed and power. Uh, then you add in Marcus Allen, who was just so slick and fast. And... You know, other than Josh Jacobs right now, I'm going with Napoleon Kaufman. Did not have a long career. Retired to become a priest. So you would have faith on your side with Napoleon Kaufman. You literally would have a man who can pray for you. 
in the most proper way, I guess, because he became a priest. So you would have speed, power, and faith on your side with Bo Jackson, Marcus Allen, and Napoleon Kaufman. So let me know what your perfect player is for the Raider running backs. Take three to combine the perfect player. Hit me up on Twitter at Duck Millard. You can also email me sportsandmorepod at gmail.com. And that's going to wrap things up for us on the program today i thank you so much for tuning in hope you enjoyed the show if you did please subscribe and let us know by leaving us a review and check out podcastalley.ca for all of your podcast needs and some cool past episodes of this show sports and more big thanks to sweet bejesus uh, for the official band of sports and more the podcast and of course andy sutton former nhler and owner of uh, verbero hockey equipment uh, big thanks to Andy Sutton for joining me on the program today. Thank you so much for listening. Have yourself a great rest of the week. My name is Dean Millard. Playtime is over.